This episode of Casa de Cambio is brought to you by Mansell Wines. Casa de Cambio listeners can get 30% off individual bottles and make your own dozens, plus they're going to throw in free freight Australia-wide. Just use the code CAMBIO, C-A-M-B-I-O, at checkout to get your discount. Welcome to Casa de Cambio. On this final episode of season one of Casa de Cambio, I'm joined again by none other than Friska Wiria. Welcome, Friska. Thank you. It's so good to be back. I'm so excited to be collaborating with you again on yeah. an episode of the podcast. Me too. <laughs> um, so today we're going to have a conversation about resistance to change, the R word. Mm-hmm. I find it's something that people always ask about and they want to know about. Um, so I'd like to demystify that because mm-hmm. I think it's actually quite a simple thing and it's not as complicated as it sounds. Yeah. So why don't we start first with going through what is resistance to change? Do you have a definition for that? Actually, I don't. But I think a common question that people come up to me is how do I know if resistance is happening? It's like, it's newsflash. Everybody is resistant. It's the body's natural response to change. Um, mm. It just manifests in different ways. And mm. I think a lot of people don't recognise its resistance because it can be subtle or it can be really overt, right? It could be as simple as delaying a response to an email or it could be overt as in sabotage or not providing yep. input to a particular change. So yep. I think once once you start to paint examples of resistance, then it clicks in their head. It's like, oh, right, I see that all the time. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, just touching on what you said, like there are some others like you've touched on avoidance. Mm. So if people don't come to your meetings or re- reply to your emails or um, give their feedback on, on things that you've asked for, but there's also um, – passive-aggressive behaviour, which might be accidentally on purpose forgetting to do something. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm sorry. I forgot to CC you in on this important email that was sent to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And you, (laughs) I didn't really forget. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, yeah, there's also, I think, when people are outright defiant, saying, I'm not going to do that, or they're being very hostile, Mm. or, yeah, they're knowingly or unknowingly sabotaging because sometimes people are sabotaging. They don't actually realise they're doing it. They yeah. don't even realise they're being resistant. Correct. Um, and it can be done collectively as well, like a collective yeah. work slowdown yeah. or a strike or getting a union into a workplace. That or, is a form of resistance. Yeah, or a whole team going, yeah. no, we're not going to use that system. We're yeah. just going to sit back and keep doing things the old way. Yeah. <laughs> but I think as well um, it's important to point out that resistance – these types of behaviours are not always resistance to, and I'm going to use air quotes, the change. Mm. They're often resistant to something else that's mm. going on mm. and it might not be the change. So people often say, well, they're resisting the change, but they might be resisting poor stakeholder management or poor project management. And, yeah. you know, I think you need to, before you start throwing around the R word, mm. is look at how your behaviour might be impacting people and is there something that you're doing mm. that maybe you could be doing differently yeah or better to get a different outcome 
Yeah. That's bang on. Uh, before I got here, I was actually reading uh, the ProSci report on the top five reasons why people resist. Were you reading the ProSci report on the tram? Yes, I was. Apartment? Oh my God, you nerd. I know. I love it though. I love it. I'm such a geek. <laughs> and what did it say? And two of what you just touched on was in that report, which is the organization's past performance with change. So if change was managed really bad, it's not the fact that they're risking the change, but they were hurt in the past and they don't want to relive that experience. And if there's no support or commitment from the managers, then they're like, why should I? Why should I support this? So, of course, yeah. they'll be Why resistant. should I work ex- do extra work? Yeah, learn something totally for new for nothing when you yourself are not doing the work. Yeah, so. and I, I think the failure to implement change well in the past is massive because mm. no one's going to put their hand up to be a change champion yeah. if they think it's going to be a dog's breakfast yeah. and it's going to impact their own personal brand yeah exactly it's like being branded with the scarlet letter a (laughs) and everybody's just going to sit back and go is it shit is it not shit if it's not shit i might get on board (laughs) but i think it's going to be totally shit like the last one yeah um so they will just you know you're not going to get that enthusiasm and you're Mm. not going to get um just people lining up to help you implement because if you mm-hmm. don't have people helping you, you can't implement by yourself as a change manager or as a no. leader or a sponsor. You need a coalition of the willing, to quote Cotter. Correct. Um, Correct. We, we just provide the structures, the guidance, the advice, but at the end of the day, we're not doing the ones the implementing, right? It's a collective effort. Yeah, and a change manager's yeah. job isn't to get the whip out and, you know, yeah. hit people with a stick. It's to, you know, bring them on the journey mm-hmm. to use a – Cringy catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's not the change manager's job and it shouldn't that's be right. the, even a leader's way of managing change because mm. that's very old-fashioned and, you know, on the way out. Mm. Um, I was also, in addition to those, were there any more pro-sci uh, things that you read in the pro-sci yeah, report? Yeah, the other ones were a lack of awareness of why the change is being mm-hmm. made and people always act surprised when this comes up. But it's look, we've said it time and time again, you need mm. to repeat something five to seven times before it sinks in. Yeah, like keep on saying it until people parrot it back to you because other, because it hasn't sunk in yeah. yet. And I think as well when you're on a project, all you talk about is the change and you forget that you're just talking about this in your own little team bubble or project bubble or steering committee bubble. Correct. You haven't actually started communicating yeah. it to other people. So you're really on board with it and understanding yeah. it because it's, you've been living it for a few months yeah. and you f- people forget that actually no one outside, you know, this project team or yeah. this business People unit People on the front line aren't privy to the information no you've idea. had the privilege of for yeah. months. Yeah. That's right. So you've got to start from the beginning there and, yeah. you know, God, I'm going to say it again, bring them on that journey. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I will not. I we need to start a new hashtag. <laughs> hashtag. Bring them on the journey. Yeah. <laughs> when people say that to me in meetings, I just get, oh, and I've said it twice. I won't say it again. I'll think of something better. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's also often there's surprise change and people feel really surprised mm. and they're like, whoa, what, what, what is this? And, you know, when you feel like you're having something sprung on you, mm. of course your immediate reaction is to have that cortisol release, the yep. stress react because we yep. as humans are ruled by our amygdalas mm-hmm. and – the amygdala releases cortisol, mm-hmm. uh, which is the stress fight or flight hormone. Correct. And so it's like if you have anything sprung on you, whether it's some constructive slash negative feedback that you mm. weren't expecting mm-hmm. or if it's a major change at work, you, you know, can be like, what? 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 I had no idea. when. It, what? You know, and you just kind of, yeah, you, you people, of course, are going to not react positively to mm. that if you just feed them little bits of information over a period of time. And that's also another reason why um, restructures always get 
very poor feedback on how they were change managed because you kind of have to – well, I don't think you have to surprise people, but often it's kept secret because they don't want rumours and, you know, things going around a company about yeah. a potential – even though the rumours always happen and yeah. – People seem to know that it's coming, but I mean, you can't really say, yeah, we're thinking of making you all redundant. What do you guys think of that? I, I actually think it might be better to still involve people and say, mm. look, we've got to cut this money. And mm. I, How do you I, suggest we do it? Yeah, and mm. what roles do you think? Because the, another reason it gets poor feedback is because no one's being engaged yeah. and they're not engaging the front line, then, you know, you have HR and some senior managers deciding which are the most important things and often it's not the correct decision because they don't have as deep and they have understanding no concept whatsoever <laughs> exactly of the day-to-day runnings exactly. of their business and what you know tasks are important because they don't fully understand what every single person does yeah i've only ever seen that done once well um for a public utilities organization in wa and they were very open and transparent with these are these are the kinds of roles that are available these are the ones that have to go and it's the only time where um, an employee took the voluntary redundancy package and he had something like 20 years of, of service with this company and mm. he sent a heartfelt letter to every single person in the business. So they obviously didn't have much control over their um, gal distribution list, but he went to every single person. Not just that, but he went to the media. So it was it was in the business news, it was in the in the local paper, and it just cemented them as a good place to work. And he mm. commended them on the respect, uh, the empathy, and the integrity the business had in handling what is often a very difficult situation. So many businesses don't handle yeah. it well. So yeah. I've only ever seen it done well once. I've never seen it done well, mm. and I've been made redundant myself, mm. um, and been on the you know impacted person end. Yeah. And you know uh, my direct manager was amazing and mm. my manager's manager was great but the way it was handled like some of the decisions that were made so I'm, I should probably just tell the story mm. um so I was made redundant when I was on holiday mm, charming mm. number one not less than ideal yeah um and you know I again um there are a lot of rumors going around so yeah. that's also not great so I even before leaving on my holiday I had given my Skype my boss and I had added each other on Skype because yep. we thought well if we need to Skype because you're in the you're in London and it's 10 p.m. and you know we need to have a call at mm. 7 a.m. Australian time. That was all set up. Yeah. Um. So that happened and you know I was mixed feelings about the redundancy, obviously. Yeah. But then another thing that happened is um, there was a consultation period and then I was to go into redeployment while still on holiday. And mm. I said I'd like to start my re. And that's when you're supposed to be looking for other roles within the organisation mm. um, if that's what you want. And I said, well, I'd like to start the redeployment period when I return from my holiday because I'm, you know, in another time zone. I'm over the other side of the world and I'm having a holiday. Yeah. I'm not in a – and I don't have my work laptop with me. I d- there's no remote login. Like I can't actually search for roles. Yes. When I don't have my stuff <laughs> and I'm in a different – and uh, HR said no, even though my boss and my boss's boss recommended that. So that was really – thought, yeah, I thought it was really – Bloody uncool. Yeah, um, yeah. And so when I came back... They really took the human out of human resources in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, like, that's just cold. Yeah, yeah, it, it was cold. Yeah. Um, and luckily enough, a colleague of mine sent me a role for a secondment and I, my boss also logged on it, logged on as me, mm. <laughs> more air quotes, and completed the application and, you know, I ended up getting that secondment. But when I returned to work and returned to Australia... Mm. Um, 
I was in redeployment and I think I was due to finish up in a week and I came back to all these angry emails from more HR people saying, why haven't you come to this resume building session? Why haven't you come to this career session? And I was mm. like, because I've been overseas. Like, did you not get my out of office? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so there were a lot of, you know, and I just thought there's no absolutely no reason to treat someone that way. That's right. Um, yep. And it ended up being fine. I got the secondment. I had mm. the interview, you know, smashed it, mm. you know, got a nice redundancy at the end of that secondment. Yep. But, yeah, I just thought, why do that? And, yeah. you know, imagine if I was someone who was less resilient mm. um, and was actually – because I was thinking maybe it's time to look for my next role, whether that's mm. in that organisation or externally because there weren't going to be the same challenges for me um, in the following year. So I was already in that mindset. So I went, well, decisions made for me. Imagine if I was someone who was not in that mindset and was quite, you know, deeply impacted. Mm. It would have been even worse. Um, but we're going to go back to resistance because we went off on it. was a good tangent. Um, but you were talking about why resistance happens and you talked about, you know, people not getting enough notice and, and, and if failure to deliver change well in the past has happened. I'd like to maybe add a little bit to the what you mm. brought up from the ProSci report because there's also people are afraid of the unknown or they're afraid of losing something. They might yep. lose their status, they might lose some of their co-workers and friends um, or the status quo, yep. which they might be happily just, you know, trotting along. Um, I think a lack of trust is another reason. If there's new management or, pe- you know, the people leading the change haven't built up a rapport, then mm. people are less likely to get on board with that. Yep. Um, and I think maybe building on failure to pro- uh, implement change well, failure to create an environment that's conducive to change so that's things like not budgeting appropriately for your project so Mm. you might need all of this customization to make you know to mean that your system that you're implementing meets business requirements but Mm. you decide no we'll just go with the out of the box solution and people can just deal yeah those types of decisions you might go okay we might need four trainers and two change analysts but we'll just get a change manager and ask them to do everything Mm. (laughs) and see you know what comes of that and um i think another one is if you fail to tie the reason for the change back or if you fail fail to actually help people understand why you're doing this why are we doing this yeah the amount of projects I've been on where you, you go to write a comms and you're like well into the project and you go, okay, so why are we doing this? And people go, um, I don't know. Because uh, <laughs> uh, it worked well in another state. And I'm like, well, what worked well about it? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, mm. so I think people need to understand. If they understand why a company is making a particular change and how it ties back to the company's vision and mm. the company's strategy, then they'll go, okay, it's a hard decision and it's not great for me, but I yep. understand why we're doing it. Yep. People know that companies face challenges. People know that companies are being disrupted by the competitors. Like they read news on LinkedIn or wherever they, about They just need own. to be told. Yeah. So you know? if they know the company's in trouble, it's like, yeah, just like the example you brought up about the redundancy. Yeah. Tell people, look, yeah. you know. They knew, you know, people were increasing the number of solar they were interested in the roofs, so it just wasn't economically viable anymore, you know, and with the increase of technology, technology, then, yeah, you have to work smarter. Mm. Mm. So I think there's a, yeah, there's a huge amount of reasons that anyone could be displaying the types of behaviours that we discussed mm. that indicate they may be resistant to something. Mm. Um what would you recommend people do to mitigate that resistance and, you know, address some of the behaviours that they're seeing? Get people involved early. 
So you and frontline people too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you do it with them, not to them. You know, absolutely. The, the most um, successful sort of cost reduction slash value driving initiative within GE, it's legendary, is, is their workout program. So what the project team there did was instead of mandating how the change would occur, they just need they just told them what needed to happen. What were the goals? And then mm. they empowered employees to create their own projects to help them achieve that. Yeah. Oh, mm. my God. And it's that's common sense. Yeah. But so few people – I find, yeah, very often um, stakeholders and managers that I've worked with in the past don't value the point of view of an end user or a frontline employee mm. that much. And that I find that very disappointing. Yeah. Um, because I think they're the people who are serving your customers. They're the first point of contact for your brand. Yeah. Um, they know how things work on a day-to-day basis. That's right. Get out of your ivory tower. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, the people who are the worst at this are people who started their career on the front line and worked their way up. Mm. It might have been 10 or 15 years ago that they were in that role, but they Mm. think they know it all. And it's like, "Mm." I even had someone say to me once, we have a lot of opinions out there because I was trying to set up a frontline change champions group and people were really against it. And I was like, this is... Okay, I don't know. This is change management 101. It's mm-hmm. not groundbreaking or particularly innovative. Mm. But yes, yeah, someone said, oh, we have enough opinions out there. And I thought, well, we have enough opinions of senior managers. What we don't have any of is opinions of actual frontline people. Yeah. Um, so yes, agree with you 100%. And what people don't realise is you don't have to agree with their views, but just seek to understand. We're not seeking agreement. You know, We're just wanting you to actively listen and engage with your people. Mm. I think I think there's a quite a bit of misunderstanding about that. You don't have to agree. They just want to be heard. They just want to be understood. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I think as well, if you do have a scenario where – because I, I actually don't believe that people are inherently resistant to change. I think people are – they understand that change needs to happen. They're mostly on board with it. It's the way that you implement it that they become resistant to – However, I will caveat that with I think there's a tiny percentage of people who maybe naturally are not stuck in their comfort zones. Yeah. Not super into change. Mm. And I think with those people, you do need to just give them some space. Don't try and force them and just focus on, you know, your early adopters Mm. and the people who will come a bit faster and they'll eventually get on board. They'll eventually come around, you know, the peer pressure, they'll start seeing other people doing it and go, Okay, I think this is happening. But you can't try and get into those people's faces too quickly. Just give them some time to Mm. digest and understand it. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, And I think as well, if one of the reasons that you are experiencing resistance is because you failed to create an environment conducive to change, then go create one, Mm. you know. Don't be afraid to put those resources in and, you know, try to understand what you need to do to do better next time. Yeah. Get your frontline people involved and actually turn that around so that, yeah, people go, okay, we were bad at delivering change in the past but now it's all right and I'm happy to get involved. This is, this is the thing. It's, it's never too late to make a fresh start, you know, and um, everybody wants changes done well, fast, you know, and cheap. But newsflash, you can't have all three. Yeah, oh, and at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> That's another one is timing. Like people will not get on board if the timing is just stupid. Mm. Like th- I feel like every project I work on, they're trying to deliver in December and you've got, you know, like most companies it's a peak period, whether it's sales, 
you know, in logistics and transport, it's parcel delivery. Um, mm. It's busy for everybody. It's yep. year-end if you're in finance and yet some executive has a KPI that they have to deliver something in a calendar year so they start to apply a lot of pressure on project teams and people to implement and, you know, sometimes I, I feel like a bit of upward management needs to happen Yeah, to say, look, this is... <laughs> and you've got people going on their leave as well, mm-hmm. you know, and they're saying, oh, train people and then have them go on holidays for two weeks and then they're going to cut and it's like they're going to forget all the training. So there's a lot of that, I think, as well. That leads me to my next resistance management strategies. What, what are the obstacles to create an obstacle-free zone? Like you said, mm. they may relate to family, they could relate to finances, physical issues, um, you know, whatever it is. So often changes are introduced without considering the conflicts to other elements. So for example, um, I was leading a global offshoring initiative, which was obviously driven by a desire to reduce costs. Mm-hmm. Um, so sending, you know, work that didn't require face-to-face client interaction to delivery centres in India. Mm-hmm. What they failed to realise is the project managers that were in charge of delegating who does what, their KPIs did not align to that cost reduction. Their KPIs were all about Uh. client satisfaction, you know, the quality of their project status reports. So they had no incentive to reduce costs. They had no incentive to send work overseas. And of course, they wanted to protect their mates, right? The more work they send overseas, the more people that lose their jobs locally. Mm. Mm. So often, you know, it's introduced and they're like, oh, I wonder why no one's doing it. I know. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes the reasons are so obvious. Mm. Like I've, I've worked on projects, you know, where and I get asked in almost every interview, oh, I'm managing resistance to change. And mm. it's hard for me to not roll my eyes and go, oh, it's probably you, but <laughs> you're doing something. But I've had, you know, interviews and subsequently gone into roles where they've said, oh, we've got some really resistant stakeholders. I'm like, mm. yeah, I can sort them out. I love it because I, I think managing resistance to change and kind of, I guess you could call it project recovery, mm. are two of my specialties. Mm. I got a lot of experience in it. So I can answer the questions well in interview, but then I get into the role and I speak to the, and air quotes again, resistant stakeholders. And mm. they go to me, we totally understand why we need to do this and we're on board, but what we don't like is this, 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 and this. And yep. I'm like, oh, so you haven't been listened to. How mm. about that? <laughs> or you've given requirements about what it's going to take for this to work for you and they haven't been written down or properly developed yeah mm, how about that <laughs> you know the people go oh they're being resistant to the change and it's like well they're not they're actually have are clearly stating how on board with it and that they yes. want to do it but they're yeah. not going to do it until their requirements are met Correct. so all we have to do is just meet their requirements yeah. or explain why maybe we can't develop a particular thing like it's you know mm. and sometimes for project managers oh i've got another one actually i had <laughs> I had a project manager, well, I was on a project and there was a stakeholder who kept asking to see a demo of the system. Yeah. So if you think about the change curve and yeah. where someone's in on the curve, they're in the exploration phase. If they're asking for a demo mm. of the system, that means they've accepted that the change is happening and they want to see how it's going to work for them, their mm-hmm. teams, their customers. So I'm thinking, let's give her a demo. This is great. And then they can ask – and during that phase, they ask a lot of questions and they're not going to like the answers they get to every question, which is also okay because then you can deal with that really early rather than five minutes before go live mm. when they're like – you know, and then people start, stop, you know, jumping up and down and refusing to sign off. And, and the project manager at that time said, oh, we can't 
give a demo of the system. Why not? Oh, because she'll ask a lot of questions. Yeah, isn't that what we want? No. Oh, shit, Sherlock. I don't want her to ask any questions. I'm like, oh, fuck, okay. Uh, <laughs> she, and the project manager wanted to just keep showing that stakeholder a PowerPoint pack. And I was like – and she kept – of course, she kept asking me to update the pack and so she could show it to her again. And then that stakeholder got progressively more and more annoyed mm. and became really, you know, withdraw, withdrawing and became suspicious – that the system was actually very bad and wasn't going to meet any of her requirements because why is no one showing it to yeah, me? Yeah, it's fair enough. Mm. And then I was in a situation where the project manager was saying, well, this person's being very resistant and I need you to change manage them. And I'm like, okay. But what I had to do was actually change manage the project manager to give the demo, stop you know, managing that stakeholder in, in a poor poorly because that's what was happening. It wasn't resistant. And, you know, I think if I can just impart... One piece of advice, although I've got more pieces of advice coming up, don't label something as resistance. You actually really need to think about why is someone behaving that way. Yeah. It, is it? Because yeah. it's probably not to do with the change. It's probably to do with something else. A little bit of empathy goes a bloody long way. and Yeah, it's just lacking. Yeah, and trying to understand. Mm. You know, and even when I've been going through a change or, you know, I'm a stakeholder, which is rare. Mm. I'm usually, mani- you know, on the other side of it. But if I don't agree, I say, look, I don't understand. Help me understand. Currently, I'm not on board. Mm-hmm. Help get me on board. Mm-hmm. Tell me why. Mm-hmm. And you can just say, and let's have the conversation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then usually that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, what were we talking about before that? We were talking about um, elements that don't align, for example, KPIs or whatnot to the change. Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, that's another thing. I mean, if you're trying to bring about change, you do need to make sure that, especially if it's, you know, a sales KPI, because often I have also been in the position where people's KPIs are contrary to what we're trying to implement. Mm. So as a project, we're saying do this, but their KPIs are encouraging a completely opposite behaviour. So what yeah. do you think they're going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, another top tip for managing resistance to change mm-hmm. Do your change management planning. Do an impact assessment. Do a change plan. Do a comms plan. <laughs> execute on those. <laughs> Hire a, be cr- go crazy. Hire a change manager. Oh, God. <laughs> a good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing is it's planning. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, so then you're not surprising people. You're actually, you know, you're not go reactively going, oh, let's do a comms. Let's send an email. You're actually clearly have a thought out delivery plan yeah. of how you're going to do it, which is, you know, follow change management principles. Correct. Use a structured I mean, approach. It's, yeah. It's a no-brainer, but come on guys. Yeah. Do you especially the impact assessment because I think failure to consider properly consider and understand the impact cuz how many times for have you heard people go, "Oh, it's no impact, you know, we just need comms." Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> or they think that comms is synonymous with change management, but it's only one part of it. Yes, it's, I'm rolling it's, my eyes. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's very important to its success, but there's sponsorship coaching, there's you upward know, management. Yeah, exactly. There's capability building, you know, s- uh, training needs analysis, you know, yeah, lots of things. Yeah, so much more than comms and training. Yeah. But even if you start at comms and training, that's a good starting yeah, point too. It is. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a very big hot tip. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Use, use some of your change management principles. Ask your friendly neighbourhood change manager what you should do. <laughs> um, I've got some other just tips and they're not theoretical or anything, but they're just what I've learnt along the way. And I yeah. think the first one is 
if you are leading change or you're working on a project where you're implementing change and someone is behaving in a hostile manner or, mm. you know, displaying, yeah, passive-aggressive behaviour or sabotaging, don't take it personally. They're not reacting to you. They're reacting to the change. Mm-hmm. And obviously I don't suggest that anyone be a doormat and allow themselves to be bullied or, you know, put up with unprofessional behaviour, but you do need to disassociate and say it's not you. They're reacting to the change and they're reacting to whatever it is that they don't like. So... Once you can do that, you can move past it very quickly and you can start to have those difficult conversations. You can, but if it goes on too long, then they turn out to be a key blocker and you really do need to remove them because that could be a powerful symbol and lets the others that are remaining know that, A, you're not mucking about with this change. Mm. B, you're not going to tolerate resistance of any kind. No, you should never tolerate crappy behaviour. Yeah, exactly. I'm not... I need to, yeah, really call out that I'm not saying yeah, yeah, put yeah. up with shitty behaviour. Just yeah. don't take reactions personally. Yeah. yeah, totally, yeah. And then lastly, see the consequences of not getting on board are real, right? Mm. Because often there's no consequences for not getting on board. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, and people think, well, if I make enough of a fuss, this won't happen yeah. and then we won't have to do it. It makes my job really hard yeah. because <laughs> they're, not, they're not held accountable so there's no carrot or stick. Mm. Mm. So, where's the impetus to change? It's non-existent. Yeah, mm. yeah, true, true. Um, another one is I think you shouldn't ever tell someone who's being resistant that mm. they're being resistant. Oh, yeah. Because they won't like it. Yeah. So, keep that to yourself. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that happen. I've never done it, but I've seen other people, like sponsors go, oh, you're being resistant. Stop being resistant. And then everyone goes, I'm not being resistant. How yeah. dare you? But, and it just, it's never helpful no, it's not. to the situation. Yeah. So that's another tip is just don't mention the war. Keep the R word to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, just talk about it internally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, another one is I found the first reason that someone gives for being opposed to something mm. is never the real reason mm. you need to you can never take that you at face value and react to dig to deeper go, dig deeper yeah, what's you, the root cause yeah, yeah. you need to re- it's often something very personal yeah and even sometimes people don't even know it yet they just say oh it's this and what i've seen project people do is they run off and react they take it at face value in that yeah. and go oh well we have to do blah, blah, blah. and i'm like and you need to you know ask some probing questions yeah. use the five whys yeah and really get to the bottom of it. And it might take some time, but that's – it's just something I've noticed Yep. over many, many years of implementing change. Like the first reason that someone throws out, it's never the real reason. Like don't accept it. Yeah, it's a bullshit superficial yeah. reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and the last one is if there's someone who just won't shut up mm. about why this change isn't going to work, that person is your new BFF. You need to take that person out for coffee. You need mm. to really get to like – and it's a normal – like a lot of people react by going, oh, my God, I just want them to shut up and go away. Why do they keep – Yeah. No, you need to listen to that person because yeah. I fi- what I find with corporate dynamics and dynamics in teams is a lot of people will sit back and say nothing and they'll let the loud mouth mm. take the Dominate brunt. everything. But, yeah. but they'll let them say the stuff mm. that everyone else is too scared to bring up. So mm. – I am sometimes that person because I, you know, have gone, well, I don't think this is a good idea and I think they want feedback and so I'm going to speak up. And there's been a number of times where I've been in meetings or, you know, in some kind of situation, even a social situation, and I'll say something really blunt. <laughs> Everyone who knows me will be like, mm-hmm. Um, and then 
after that meeting or that call finishes, five or six people will come up to me and say, oh my God, Tash, thank you so much for saying something about that because I really agree with you, but I was way too scared to say it. Yeah. So I would, uh, but they were just, they were basically like, I'm going to sit back and let you suffer any consequences that come from that. Yeah. But thanks for saying it and I didn't have to. So that person usually has a lot of people agreeing mm. with them, even though they might not be outwardly agreeing with them mm. in a public meeting setting or, you know, because, yeah, so you really need to take them out for coffee, get to know them, become their best friend, um, understand what it is so you can help overcome. Because I feel like as a change manager in a project, you are actually the advocate for the customer and the frontline person. Yep. So you've got to understand that and take it back to your project team and say, look, it's you know we've got to do this, we've got to do this. Mm. I even now joke now I'm with some people like that. I think I say to them, I'm like, you're the best friend of the project. <laughs> <laughs> but also you've got to involve those people in testing because they're going to find the defects. Yeah. If you Because I've seen projects try and exclude those people from testing because they're going to find defects and they want everything they want. And it's like, well, then the defects will pop up when we're live. Yeah. Hello. They don't want red traffic lights. Yeah. Show me all the green. Yeah, they don't want yeah. people who are difficult. And it's like, no, mm. you want that person to be involved because they will sort through all the potential issues. They will mm. call out everything that could possibly happen. Mm. And that means when you – yes, it will be difficult now, but when you go live, it will be very smooth because you've already gone through that experience with that person. So I, I feel like that person needs to be treated with a lot more respect. Yeah. Yep. So they're my top tips. Okay, I've got two more. Great. The first one is energize and enthuse. So, so many leaders, they don't personally connect with employees to create the desire to change and they're just not passionate about it. You know, people aren't robots. Tell us your they're story. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us why you believe in this damn thing, you know, and and if you're embarking on a change and own program. It. Yeah, own Bloody it. Own it. Oh my don't God. leave it to yes. your change manager. Yes. Everybody needs to visibly and actively support it if you're a management or leadership position because wishy-washy support just undermines the effort and it increases discontent and potential resistance among the ranks. Yeah. 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 And going back to the comment about sabotage that Mm. we talked about at the beginning, I find – well, actually, sabotage and resistant behaviour. I find the majority of the time when I've been dealing with or experiencing resistance on projects or resistance Mm. to change – is it's not your frontline people or your end users who are being resistant. It's sponsors, leaders, middle managers and executives. The ones who are supposed to be leading and role modelling the change are most often the ones who are guilty of displaying resistant behaviours and sabotaging it. Yeah, so should we be surprised most projects only have a 20% success rate? No. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I agree with that statistic. Mm. I've heard that 70% of change projects fail, but Mm. I do kind of i mean cynical me depends which report you read right yeah Yeah. and i mean i think that one of the measures of success that went into that study yeah was about projects being on time and under budget Mm. and it's like well how do you measure measure change success it's around adoption Mm. um capability uplift it's not around i mean on time and under budget sure but yeah if you delivered a change project on time and under budget, but the capability wasn't there, the adoption wasn't there, yeah. you wouldn't say it was successful. Exactly. It's how many so go on board? How fast get on board? How good they are once they're on board. Right? Yeah. I yeah. know that stat gets uh, rolled out a lot by consulting companies when mm. they're trying to scare their clients and into purchasing lots of their consulting services. But I, um, and like, would you say that 80% of the projects that you worked on failed? No. Yeah, neither would I. Mm. So, again, that makes me challenge 
the statistic. I mean, mm. I've probably only worked on one or two out of maybe 40 or 50 that have been on time and under budget. <laughs> How often does that happen? <laughs> it's like a unicorn. It is, it's, when it happens, you're like, wow, I didn't know this was possible. Um, but, you know, it's. I feel like as change managers, we need to kind of challenge that stat because I feel, if I go around saying – 70% of projects fail or 80% of change initiatives fail. It's like saying, well, I do a crappy job because mm. I, I wouldn't well, say. Well, the, the, the exact quote was don't achieve their full target benefits. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's definitely true. Yeah. 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 yeah often. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> sorry right. for going on a little rant. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And yeah. I would say there's a lot of business cases that have, I guess, undercooked costs and overinflated benefits. So mm. that doesn't surprise me at all. Mm. But, yeah, I um, I get a little bit, you know, when people say, oh, change efforts fail, I'm like, well. Because most of the change programs I have worked on, I would say, were successful. Were they as successful as I would have liked? Not always. Always room for improvement. They're, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I, I would all – every project or, or thing I've ever implemented, I could – call out lots of things that could have been done better and yeah. it's usually to do with budget and yeah. resourcing and you know things things that are out of my control yeah you know <laughs> we're great <laughs> or, obviously <laughs> but yeah I mean there's so much that goes into it anyway yeah. let's move on well the last one is show me the money and by that I don't mean turning up to a house to a town hall with like hundred dollar bills in your pocket by this yeah, I we mean want a complete transformation and here's five <laughs> cents and can you do it by yourself <laughs> what I mean by this is make it real for people. So demonstrate the benefits in a tangible way to remove fears or doubts. So case studies, comparable companies that have done it, if it's a change that they're embarking on for the first time. So who's done it? Um, how did they go? What did they learn from it? And what were mm. the benefits? And also the opposite. Who hasn't done the change that you're trying to advocate for and implement? And what were the results that they had, you know? And what are the risks of doing nothing? Yeah. Yeah, because that's a big one. It's like, well, a lot of companies, I mean, let's take Telstra, for example. Mm. They are going through an agile transformation Mm -hmm. and, you know, their reasoning is, well, we're right for being disrupted. We don't know what it is, but it could happen. So they've got to do something. They can't just sit back and do nothing. They've got to make themselves, you know, fitter, faster, stronger more able to respond to threats even mm. though – but that's a that's a reason. And, yeah, if they sit back and do nothing and just rest on their laurels – and a, any company, I mean, look at Kodak. Exactly. Yeah, Kodak um, – everybody knows Kodak, the film processing company, the camera company. Yep. They, was it when digital cameras came out? Mm-hmm. They just were not able to move away from film processing and they went completely bankrupt. Mm-hmm. A company who had been around for a really long time, had an amazing brand – brand loyalty and, you know, so well-known and they just went under. Yeah, Blockbuster Video is another one that just chose to put their head in the sand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and just got, you know, completely yeah. reamed by Netflix. Yeah, that's right. <sighs> so whatever you use to show people the benefits, just make sure the examples are relevant and on point. Mm. Good one. So, Friska, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment? Uh, I've recently, in the middle of Susan Cain's book, The Quiet, so it's about um, how introverts can succeed in a loud and noisy world. Would you consider yourself to be an introvert? Oh, hell yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm 
surprised to hear that. I'm an INTJ through and through. I've taken the test multiple times. Yeah, I recharge by having quiet time alone. Mm. Yeah, death to me is being pushed into a networking event where you have to make small talk with lots of people. But you go to a lot of networking events and make small talk with lots of people. I've seen you do it. No, I make my small talk quickly turns into big talk with a select handful of people. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm. Watching, Um, listening. Watching. I actually like, um, what's her name? Oh, Vanessa Vanessa Van Edwards. Um, She's got something called People School on YouTube. She has really Mm -hmm. good, um, good tips on social skills, how to engage people. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. Cool. Mm. What am I listening to? I just wrapped up listening to the Big Day Out podcast. Mm -hmm. It's called Inside the Big Day Out Mm -hmm. and it's all about, you know, the festival, the Big Day Out. So it's all about the rise and fall of the Big Day Out because I loved the Big Day Out when I was growing up, but it's sad because you kind of know what happens at the end. Mm. Um, But I found that fascinating and it's an it's actually a really interesting case study mm. on a business that is not responding well to changing market conditions oh. because when the Big Day Out started, they were the only travelling music festival. They started in, I think, 1991 mm. and they got a big, like they booked Nirvana for the first Big Day Out and they Nirvana at that time were the supporting act for the Violent Femmes. Wow. And, you know, between – and this happens a lot between booking the band and the concert, like the show actually happening, Nirvana released Nevermind and, you know, it went completely crazy and they were the biggest band in the world. So yeah. everyone wanted to go to the big day out and yeah. they made heaps of money. And, yeah. you know, so they – you know, if you can do that a few times. But then by the mid-2000s there were millions of festivals, um, mm. loads of bands coming out. Mm. So punters had and cut with their customers had lots and lots of choice, mm. whereas before it was just the big day out. So when I was growing up, it was just the big day out. Mm. But then you had things like Future Music Festival and Park Life and Soundwave and you know so many competitive festivals and people were expecting huge lineups and huge bills and they just responded to that by spending more money and booking ridiculously expensive acts like Kanye West and uh, who you know and. And not not enough people went? Yeah, they ended up having uh, lagging ticket sales. They spent way too much money on their headlining acts. So um, Kanye West. I went to the one that Kanye West was at and we were like, oh, my God, he sucks. And we went and saw someone else. He reportedly was getting a million dollars per big day out. So he chewed up all the money. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, and I went to the what was ended up being the last big day out and it had – Snoop Dogg, Major Laser, Pearl Jam, The Hives. Mm. And I thought, this is great, but there was no one there. Like I remember being there with my friends going, where is everybody? Why mm. is no one here? I don't understand. It sounded like they were responsive to change. So they, they got top acts. You think it was a pricing issue or what, what, what do you think contributed I to think, the demise? Well, I think there was a lot of competition for the headlining acts and other festivals just started offering more and more. So it became more and more expensive mm. to get the headline acts. Mm. And then, um, you know, they just couldn't com- – like instead of trying to differentiate themselves after being disrupted by all these other festivals coming into yeah. the market, they just tried to spend more money and be bigger and better, yeah. which failed. Yeah. And then they had nothing to fall back on because they spent all their money. Mm. So I don't know what the answer yeah. is, but – it was sad. Yeah. Um, what am I watching? I'm watching – I started watching Peaky Blinders 
on the recommendation of two other podcast guests. Got a couple of seasons in and I'm not sure I like it anymore. Um, I don't know if I'll continue watching. It's like, I don't know. We're fast-forwarded into the future and now major characters died and uh, mm. what else? I watched season three of The Crown. That was great. Mm-hmm. Do you watch The Crown? No. Oh, mm. It's fascinating. There's all this stuff that happened during the Queen's reign. Mm. That there was you, you end up obsessively looking things up on Wikipedia. Like Prince Philip's mum was a member of the English aristocracy mm-hmm. and she married a Greek prince and then they got – their royal family got kicked out of Greece during World War One, maybe? Yep. And she ended up rejecting her wealthy lifestyle, becoming a nun and running some kind of convent slash uh, welfare organisation <laughs> in Athens. Wow. Right? Yeah. And there was – yeah, so there's all this stuff that happens and you're like, you can't even make that – it's 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 wild. Okay. The amount of stuff. So, love the crown. <laughs> and what am I reading? Um, I'm reading a book called Saga Land which it's taken me ages to get through, but it's by um, Richard Feidler and an Australian-Icelandic fellow, Curry Gislaslan, mm. I think his name is, and it's all about uh, a lot of the old Viking sagas that were mm. written. Mm. That's very interesting. I'm hoping to finish it before Christmas. Okay. All right, so that's it for Casa de Cambio for the year. I hope you like season one. Um, I'm going to come back next year with more episodes, more guests, more chats. But if you like Casa de Cambio, please jump onto Apple Podcasts, give it a five-star rating and write a review. That's all for now. Thank you so much, Friska. It's been an absolute delight having you on Casa de Cambio a second time. I hope we can collaborate again in the new year. Me too. Thanks for having me again. Bye. See ya.